Well, good morning, everyone. There are certain moments when songs just take on more meaning. When this race is complete, still my lips will repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. This week has been a challenging and painful one for our church family as we have had the, the, the mixture of joy and sorrow, sorrow of loved ones who have departed, but the joy of knowing that the race is complete. And, and so we're mindful of the meaning of Christmas, are we not? We think back to some of those passages, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. For I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Jesus said, I will save my people from their sins. Makes the message of Christmas all the more poignant, all the more relevant, all the more needy. Because it's so good. Even in the midst of all the difficulties that we deal with. And there was a reason why Jesus needed to come. And aren't we glad he did? And aren't we glad that the testimony as he enables us will be when my race is complete. Still my lips will repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. If you're able to get out this afternoon, the float uh, that the OCS has prepared is wonderful. There's been a lot of hard work that's been put in it. The Parade of Lights will start at 5.30 tonight. Be nice to show up and support the school and the church if you can. I realize the conditions aren't as favorable as we'd like, but we're looking forward to celebrating as we We'll go through downtown Orville and just celebrate. And there's a reason for us to celebrate because the light has shone down into our darkness. And so if you can get out today, that would be, that would be great. In May of 1999, I went on a trip to the country of Jordan to explore future ministry opportunities. We had just graduated from seminary and we were searching literally where in the world God would have us go. We'd come off, come off the mission field to go to seminary. We felt like the Lord was leading us back to the mission field. And where would that be? And so we set out on a three-week trip that took us to different countries. And I arrived. I left Carol and, and the kids back in Belgium. And I went on a five-day trip to Jordan. And one day while I was there, I hired a cab driver to take me on a whirlwind tour of some of the historic sites of this ancient city. You know, all of the great civilizations of humanity have coursed through Jordan. And so those stones and bones can tell a lot of stories. But one of the cities I visited was the ancient city of Jerash, which is one of the cities of the Decapolis in what we call in the New Testament, the region of the Decapolis, one of these league, cities, of, this league of ten cities that were under Roman rule, but they could operate independently. Now, it was in Gentile areas, but it was an area where the Lord Jesus Christ himself would have gone. And so it was exciting to, in a sense, get in touch with some ancient history. And the city is full of great archaeological importance. There are remains of walls and roads and pillars and buildings that testify to the great civilizations that had gone across this land. And there's almost two completely intact amphitheaters that were built in antiquity but are still used for concerts and gatherings today. And as the tour guide was leading me around the city, at one point we found ourselves on top of a, of a tell. Now a tell is like a mountain, but how a tell forms is when a city is destroyed to rubble, 
They build the next city on top of that rubble, and then when that's destroyed, they build the next city on top of that, and eventually a hill is formed. And so we're on the top of this hill, which was quite large. Imagine building a city, one on top of the other. And I was asking questions about the city, about its history, about the people, about important events. But as we were walking around the city, the old city of Jerash, I noticed that they had uncovered ruins of many ancient churches. And so I began to ask about them. Now, today, Jerash is a predominantly Muslim city, but it has not always been the case. And so as I was asking about these different churches, my guard stopped and he said, look, look down at your feet. Now, remember, we're on top of this tell. He said, you're actually standing on the wall of an ancient church. And as I looked down, you could see the formation of a wall. And of course, it had been filled in by dust and rubble and everything over the years. And I was struck by that moment because it got me to thinking. The Spirit of God was once at work in that place. Baptisms and weddings were performed in that place. People gathered regularly for the hearing of the word of God and for serving one another in that place. But now it's literally a pile of ruins filled up with dust and rubble of centuries. And the thought came to my mind, what will remain of my church a hundred years from now? Will it still be a place where the Spirit of God is pleased to be at work? Or will it become a pile of ruins, just a museum piece? That people literally trample upon or walk by and just gaze and say, oh, look at the wonderful architecture that is no longer used for any good purposes. I felt the weight of that at that moment. I, I stood as if I was standing in the presence of God and I could almost get a glimpse of the rest of my life. And I cried out in my heart. I whispered. I said, Lord, I want my life to matter. I don't want to waste my life. I have so few years to invest. I want it to be for your kingdom and for your kingdom purposes. Use my life however you want to use it for your glory. In the subsequent weeks after that, as we considered, as we prayed in God's good providence, he led us to go to Jordan, where we spent 16 years investing in future spiritual leaders through discipleship, mentorship, and theological education. And as the Lord moved us back to the United States in 2016, he was still orchestrating the things in our lives where he arranged us to move to Northern California, where we have called our home for the past five plus years. But I thought about that day in Jerash as I studied this passage this week that we're looking at as we continue in our series through the gospel according to St. Matthew. In the passage that we will look at this morning, Jesus is warning the, cities of, the citizens of certain cities in Galilee that there is a day of reckoning that is coming, especially to those who have seen his works and have heard his words. And we who have been the beneficiaries of so much grace, so much light, so much truth, do well to listen to the words of our Lord this morning and consider the outcomes of our own lives, both for time and for eternity. Well, with that as our introduction this morning, I invite you to stand as we read our passage this morning that we will study, Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 to 24. 
and the truthful and inspired word of God says, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, that will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Let us pray. Father, this is a hard word that you have given us, but it comes from your Holy Spirit, and it is given for the edification and encouragement and education of your people, and so be our teacher in these moments, for Father, we all have ongoing business that we need to do with you. So be our teacher this morning and guide us as we look at your word, as we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. And as you turn to your sermon outline, we get to our first major point this morning. But before we do, let me say good morning to those of you that are joining us online. Thank you for being with us. We hope you can set aside time to be with us next week when we have our Christmas program. But if you can't, get some other folks to come in your place and and watch at home. But this morning, we're glad that you can study the Word of God with us as we continue through Matthew chapter 11. Our first major point this morning, as you follow along in your sermon outline, or if you have the app on your phone, you can put the notes in digitally. The failure to repent. The failure to repent. Jesus, as we have seen already in our study in Matthew, has been busy teaching and preaching and performing miracles around Galilee for some time. We've seen that he has trained and even sent out on their first missionary journey, those 12 apostles that he had sent out, the ones that he had chosen. We have seen how he dealt with John the Baptist, the forerunner that had come to announce his arrival. And now in our passage today, he's going to begin to deal with some cities who had had the opportunity and privilege to hear him, to see him, to be with him. And so with that, let's begin with what Jesus said. And then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Now, as we've seen so far in the Gospel of Matthew, there are some who have believed in Jesus. But there was by no means universal acceptance of him as Messiah. Some have come to faith, some have been healed, but many have rejected. Many have given threats. Many have even slandered both Jesus and those that he has sent out. Jesus has already warned us several times that there will be hostility, there will be opposition, there will be difficulty in ministry. We'd already seen last week in verse 16 where he was beginning to deal with this generation. He said, what shall shall I compare this generation, that generation that had seen and heard and they had rejected those rulers who were opposed to him, who had rejected what he had done. And that continues in the discourse that we see this morning. This generation, Jesus said, did not repent and believe. Some did, but the majority had not. And so whatever positive responses he had received, he also has to deal with the negative ones. And so there's, in a sense, we might say an expression of frustration, but I think even more here, an expression of warning, of impending judgment of those who had seen and heard so much, and yet who had still rejected him. 
They did not clearly understand the nature of the kingdom of God that he had brought in. They did not understand the nature of John the Baptist as the forerunner. They didn't understand what type of Messiah he had come to be. He was not the Messiah they wanted. Now, in earlier chapters, we had seen that Jesus, as he was teaching, gave a series of blessed are those, blessed are they. We call them the, the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, among others. These faith-filled and positive responses of those who enter the kingdom of heaven. But now, he doesn't say blessed are those. He says, woe. And in this passage that we look at this morning, there'll be two cycles of charges that he gives against these cities that refuse to believe. And what would be the response as a result? So the text makes clear that they had seen many of his mighty works. The healing of the blind and the lame and the deaf and the lost. The raising of those from the dead. Of healing of sickness and disease. Forgiving of sins of those who repented and believed. It was those same signs that Jesus used to direct the disciples of John back to him and say, tell them to look at the signs to see that these are the fulfillment of what the prophets had predicted. And this would help John then to overcome the doubts that he had experienced for as he saw what Jesus was doing, he would know to respond. But there were many in the crowds who had seen the miracles and we are told they were amazed. They were marveled. Did not mean that they believed. So at this point, we might want to ask the question, just because we see them so often, miracles, but what is the purpose of miracles? Well, first we start out by saying oftentimes it's not the word miracle that is used at all. Whether in Gospels, Matthew, uh, uh, Matthew's Gospel or in the Gospel of John, it is the word sign that is used. So what is the purpose of these signs? Well, you know, as we drive down the road, we have signs that indicate the direction we should go. They point us in the direction that we need to go. It's a similar way that signs then are given in the New Testament. The signs are to point to something beyond themselves. And so these signs that he is performing, these displays of power, these miracles are to point us beyond the miracles to the miracle worker himself. They're to point us to Jesus Don't focus on the miracles, focus on the one who is bringing the miracles. And the goal was to lead sinners to repentance, resulting in a transformation of the person's life. You know, once a person has met the living Christ, once the person has been born again, he he or she can never be the same because they've encountered the living Lord. And repentance brings about that life transformation. For in the true birth that comes from the Spirit of God, there will be True spiritual growth. Because what the Lord begins, he continues and he keeps going and then he preserves to the end. An evangelist by the name of Gypsy Smith hailed from the United Kingdom and he was an evangelist to Great Britain, to the British colonies, to the Americas in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Gypsy was his name, yes. Nickname. That was his background. He knew the importance of preaching for repentance, for the forgiveness of sins, of calling people to die so that Christ's life would live through them. And he gives an example of what repentance looks like, how repentance changes us. He tells the story. When I was in South Africa, a fine, handsome Dutchman came into my service, and God laid his hand on him, and he was convicted of his sin. The next morning, that same man went to the home of another Dutchman and said to him, Do you recognize this old watch? Why, yes, said the other. Those are my initials. That is my watch. 
I lost it eight years ago. How did you end up with it? Well, I stole it, was his reply. Well, what made you bring it back? I was converted last night by the Spirit of God, and I brought it back first thing in the morning. If you'd been up, I would have brought it to you last night. Change of life that comes from a change of orientation. It comes from having a new direction because we're born again in Christ. When a person hears the gospel and has eyes to see the truth, he turns from his own sin and wickedness towards the mercy and righteousness of Christ. And that changed heart brings with it the fruit of repentance. Remember John the Baptist at the beginning of Jesus' ministry said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And this has been an ongoing emphasis in the ministry of the life of Jesus. He was not interested in the crowds being amazed at what he had done. He was not interested in the crowds marveling at his mighty works. He was not impressed that they might have been excited about what was happening. What he wanted was their repentance. They're coming to Christ in faith, entering the kingdom of heaven and experiencing life transformation, that change of direction. When Jesus came, he brought a revolution that would transform how we live. That's what he hoped for. That's what he expected. That's what he desired as he begins to rebuke these, these cities. And so now we get to our sex, second major point, which is woe to Chorazin and to Bethsaida. And so that's exactly what the text says. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. It wasn't enough that they might feel bad about what they have done. It wasn't enough that they might have felt sorry or shame about what they have done. We all know that a five-year-old can do that. I'm sorry. Because they're afraid that they were caught, or they're afraid of the punishment, or they're afraid of whatever. That's not what repentance is. Repentance is that change of mind about who we are, about who God is, about what sin is, that change of direction that results in a change of life. As we're walking down the cul-de-sac of sin, repentance is turning around and walking out so that we'll walk in the pathway of righteousness. That was what was expected from these cities, which were cities of privilege. So Jesus begins with a woe. And woe, as we've already seen, is the counterpoint to blessed. The language of woe was used in prophetic history of those who failed to repent upon hearing the word of God. And so Jesus, among other things, shows that he is a true prophet. He is actually the acme of prophets. He's the prophet of prophets. He uses this woe language, which had been modeled already by the prophets that had come before him. You can see it in places like what you see on the screen. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Chorazin was located about two miles north of Capernaum. It was about the same size as Capernaum. We don't have a lot of information about it, whether in history or in the New Testament. In fact, this is the only time it's mentioned that I have found in the Gospel of Matthew. But we know enough from what Jesus is saying to read between the lines that they had seen the good works of Jesus, heard the good words of Jesus, but did not repent. And then he speaks to Bethsaida. Bethsaida was two miles to the east of Capernaum. So these three cities formed a triad. They were equidistant from one another. They were approximately the same size. They all had similar influence in that region. But what was interesting is Bethsaida was just on the east side of the Jordan River. It wasn't technically part of Galilee. It was under the control of Herod Philip. But they were like twin cities. And so whatever was happening in Galilee would have influenced Bethsaida. And the claim to fame for Bethsaida was that was where three apostles came from. 
Philip, Andrew, and Peter. And she would think, well, maybe that's something that would cause the city to repent, something to cause the city to believe. Well, they didn't, but it did show that it was possible for, for people from Bethsaida to hear the gospel and to believe. But Jesus makes clear the overwhelming response he had received was one of rejection. And so he says, you'll be worse off than pagans. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Now, Tyre and Sidon were two prominent cities in the ancient land of Phoenicia, which is in modern-day Lebanon. They were pagan countries. They worshipped the, the Baals. Sometimes we say the Baals, but there really is that little apostrophe that's in there. They worshipped these false gods, these gods of the, the Philistines, these gods of the Canaanites. But because they had interaction with the people of Israel, with the prophets of Israel, they would have at least heard. And they were constantly the object of scorn from the prophets. And their sin and their destruction and their rebellion against God and against God's people had piled up to the fact where God said, I am going to bring harsh judgment against you. And so what happened? God brought harsh judgment against them. And in history, in the 4th century, Alexander the Great destroyed these cities. The judgment came to pass, just as the Word of God said that it would. The evidence in history shows we can trust the Word of God wherever it speaks. Because with every turn of the blade of the archaeologist, every discovery in history, every discovery in archaeology just affirms what God has already said is true. Now what's interesting is that Jesus shows... He knows all things. Look at what he says. He says he knows what's in the hearts of minds of men without saying he knows what's in the hearts and minds of men. He not only knows what is, he knows what could be. He knows what would have happened in people who lived centuries before. He knows what these ancient pagan cities, wicked as they were, would have done had they had the same amount of light and opportunity and truth as the, the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida. If these pagan cities had seen the mighty works of Jesus, according to what Jesus says, they would have recognized their need to humble themselves before God and plead for his mercy and forgiveness. He said they would have repented with sackcloth and ashes, which were signs of deep repentance and sorrow and sadness over sin. Sackcloth was a rough fabric made of camel hair that would rub against the skin and it was coarse and it would cause pain. It was a reminder that sin brings pain and suffering. And ashes would be a sign of judgment and unworthiness. They'd pour the ashes over their heads saying, I'm just worthy of the judgment of God even as I cry out for mercy from him. And so these cities, had they seen these mighty acts, would have repented. They would have fallen on the ground, recognizing their utter need for the mercy of God, that all they deserved was his judgment. We see examples of the people of God repenting in sackcloth and ashes in various places in the Old Testament. But then Jesus goes on, makes an amazing statement. He says, but I tell you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. These pagan cities would have repented and believed. You saw, heard the fulfillment of what God had promised through the prophets and you hardened your hearts 
and refuse to believe. The heart that is bound up in pride doesn't want to hear, doesn't want to see, is unable to pay attention to what God is doing. That's what those cities had done. They thought that they were self-sufficient, that they could do things on their own. But it's the humble heart that God works in to bring repentance, to bring about change, to bring about transformation. But notice what Jesus says here. He doesn't back off. He says the day of judgment is real. We live in a day and age where most people even deny the possibility of God judging. After all, God just loves us so much. How would he ever dare to judge? And I would say he loves his glory so much. How would he dare not to judge? Because he protects the integrity and character of his name. They had great opportunities to grow in the truth, to hear, to repent, to believe, and they didn't, so their judgment will be more severe, Jesus said. And why is that? Because later on he will say, to whom much is given, much is required. To whom much light has been revealed, to whom much truth has been given, their judgment will be all the more severe. And woe to those, he says, to those who do not recognize God in their midst and even rebel against it when they do. The story of the history of Tyre and Sidon is proof in plain sight that God will judge, does judge. And we do well to take seriously the warnings that he gives us. But far from this being a, an act of mere violence or vindictiveness, this was actually a, a, an act of love on the part of Jesus. He's warning them that there's still time to escape the final judgment, which will come to all of us, my friends, we will not escape. The only question is who will be our advocate on that day? Will it be the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we clothed in his righteousness, having been forgiven of our sins, having the debt paid? Or we think we're going to be in a position to negotiate with God. Don't try it. Throw yourselves on the mercy of God. In the history of the church, there are far too many examples to list of people who ignored or who forgot or who became indifferent or just got bored with the things of God. Much of the history of Western Europe shows that there was great opportunity for the gospel. Even the coming of the Reformation, which brought the church back to the gospel. And the Western Europe today is by and large a spiritual wasteland. Beautiful churches that sit empty, and the only ones that go through are tourists. And many of those churches have been converted to mosques. In our own land, in areas where the great awakening of God had great impact for a period of time, in the Northeast are now among the most secular and hardened places in our land. There were places where the Spirit was once at work. They've become places of pride and self-sufficiency, and indifference and self-righteousness. Even in our own country, as young as it is, compared to the history of the world, there have been entire schools and seminaries and even denominations that have become apostate because they took their eyes off of the Lord and what he was doing and allowed their hearts to become hardened, their eyes to become dulled to the things of God. And so this is a warning to us today, my friends. We may have slogans like one nation under God or in God we trust. 
But we know that's not the case. Not when we are a land that passes laws to redefine marriage. Not when we promote abortion both in our land and around the world. Not when we are among the biggest producers and exporters of pornography throughout the world. Not when we run after greed. We need to hear the warning. It's not enough to be in a church. It's not enough to be from a Christian family. It's not enough to even have been in a country where at one time there was a Christian influence. That can never take the place of true repentance. And Jesus says, look at the works that I'm doing. We must not let the familiarity of Jesus and his teachings harden our heart to our need to daily search our hearts and to repent and to turn away from the wrong things we're doing and to keep close accounts with God. So the question I have is, where is your heart today? Are you still talking about victories from decades ago? Mercies and and graces received from decades ago? Or are there new mercies and new graces and new victories that you're seeing today? My friends, if we have seen the works of Jesus, but for some reason we've allowed hardness to come into our hearts, hear the words of Jesus and repent. Turn away from our own ways and desires. I don't want to be I don't want you to be, we don't want to be those who hear the woe of Jesus. Like Chorazin and Bethsaida. Secondly, he continues on in our third major point. He says, woe to Capernaum. Just to make things crystal clear, Jesus brings up the examples of another city that did not follow through. And if it's possible, this is even worse than the one he's just given. For he says, Capernaum was also a city of privilege. But he rebukes that city. He says, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to the heavens? You will be brought down to Hades. At that point, our knees should weaken. You'll be brought down to Hades. Jesus is using language that came out of Isaiah 14, where the king of Babylon was exalting himself and saying, I'm going to be exalted to the heavens. Perhaps that became a a trademark of, of Capernaum. But just as the king of Babylon and the spirit that was behind him were humbled in Isaiah 14, Jesus is saying the same thing will happen to the city of Capernaum. The pride comes before the fall, the haughty spirit before destruction. For if the mighty works, Jesus said, had been done in you, had been done in Sodom. Imagine hearing that for the first time. Imagine being those who were hearing these words of Jesus for the first time as he's criticizing a city and said, If Sodom had seen what you had done, or what I had done, your head would snap back. So why would he say this to Capernaum? Well, Capernaum, among other things, had become his adopted hometown. Capernaum became his headquarters in the ministry of Galilee. Think of the privileges they had to hear and to see. It was just outside of Capernaum where he gave the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Love your enemies when you fast. Do not worry about your life. Ask, seek, knock. That had happened 
just outside Capernaum. Just outside Capernaum, Jesus had said, I'm the bread of life. In John chapter 6, this great statement on the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, where we recognize that Jesus died in our place and played the guilt for our sins. Jesus healed a paralyzed man in Capernaum. In fact, if we add them up in the New Testament, there's at least 14 miracles that are recorded as having taken place in Capernaum. Surely, if we had seen these miracles and heard these teachings, surely we would have fallen on our knees in repentance, right? But how did the people of Capernaum respond? Well, we're told right here. They rejected him in spite of all the privileges that they had received. Privileges that really up till that time nobody else had seen or heard. And so he's already dealt with Chorazin and Bethsaida, and now he gets to Capernaum. And he says, and you, Capernaum, you think you're mighty. You think you have all the talent, all the abilities. Will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. And it gets even worse. It'll be worse off for you than the worst of the worst. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it would be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. We know what happened in the city of Sodom. It was a city that was utterly destroyed because of her gross immorality, her arrogance, her neglect of the poor. And all that remains of Sodom today is just destruction. And a reminder that one city is not going to stand against God. Because there's nothing that will stand against God. To whom much is given, much is required. The kingdom of heaven had come and was introduced to Capernaum as promised. It was inaugurated through Jesus as promised. We saw that in Matthew 4, that it happened just exactly where the the, the prophet said it would. Miracles were performed in Capernaum just as promised. Yet they rejected the gospel. By this time, Sodom had become a catchword or a code word for wickedness, for sin, for the, 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 the lowest point of blasphemies. City destroyed by fire and judgment. But Capernaum will receive a higher degree of judgment because it had a higher degree of revelation and opportunity and rejected what God had said. So we gain glimpses from this verse and from others that just as there are degrees of rewards in heaven, there will be degrees of punishment in hell. Imagine being in the place of those who saw the works of Jesus, who heard the works of Jesus, and turned around and said it was done of the devil. Or spit in his face and hung him on a cross. But it's easy to point outward to them and we need to point inward to us because we're all tempted to have a heart of Capernaum. We become indifferent to what God has done. May the Lord have mercy on us. That we repent, that we continually turn back to him, that we'd humble ourselves before him who is the mighty king. We must not fall into the trap to think, well, you know, it, it, it just can't happen to us. Because of history, he tells us that Anything else, it tells us that it's always possible. Dale Bruner wrote a commentary on Matthew called Christ's Book. But he also used it as an expose, a deep dive study to warn 
those who had experienced a taste of Christianity, but who had moved away from it. To those who no longer have Christ at his rightful place. And so he, he piles up different examples. But I just want to summarize a little bit what he said in his massive work. He said this, Christian countries are in special trouble on Judgment Day. Not because Jesus had not really been in their communities, but because he has. The city of Capernaum stands for all self-smug Christianity who thinks that it has a special place in the center of God's work. But Jesus is not impressed. It's going to be better in the judgment day for notorious pagans than for self-righteous and self-satisfied Christians. The sum of the matter is this. Christians should take Jesus seriously. Friends, this is, <laughs> this is a tough word. So let's hear it from the Lord. And let's ask the Lord to keep our hearts warm. Warm to his word. Warm to his church. Warm to his servants. Warm to one another. Warm to what he is doing. Because we all have a tendency towards myopia where we only see what we see and we think that's all there is. That God is at work in great ways around the world and in different places. And so we rejoice in what happens here, but we're mindful that it's not just here. He's at work among his people around the globe. Let it be a warning to us that God is still judge and he's just. And that he will call account everyone, every generation, not just this generation from the first century, but every generation. And so the warning then is that we not allow our hearts to grow cold or indifferent, but that we continue to say, look, I'm not going to argue with God anymore. I'm a sinner. I repent. I was wrong. My attitude was wrong. What I looked at was wrong. How I interacted was wrong. Because all will come under judgment. But we all know enough to know this is not a popular message today. Preaching on the judgment of God was not popular in the time of Jesus. And it will not be popular today. You will not get a guest assignment on a guest show, on a host, on a TV host show, if you go on preaching the judgment of God. You may lose friends on Facebook if you preach on the judgment of God. But what do you want? You want to please the Lord with your life? You want your life to matter? Our only hope, my friends, the purpose of this passage, the purpose of why Jesus said this was to bring us to a desperation about who we are. That our only hope is in Christ. As we sang before the sermon, yet not I, but Christ in me. That if we keep looking inward and looking to ourselves, nothing will happen except all the effects of sin. But as we look to the one who was our sin bearer, the one who is the righteous one who stood in the gap between God and our wrath and judgment that we might have peace with God, then we'll have that hope, that spirit-filled power, that determination to go out and live for the Lord. Now with the Advent season fully upon us, we're going to take a short pause from our study in Matthew and spend a couple of weeks focusing on the Incarnation on the majesty of God becoming flesh and living among us. And so you can look for us to return back to our study in the Gospel of Matthew, Lord willing, on January 8th. 
But as we look at this passage today, what are some lessons that we can take from this passage? Well, because Jesus is mighty and does mighty things, we ask the Lord to open our eyes to see and believe him. Do an experiment this week. Spend time in prayer and say, Lord, open my eyes to see how you're at work around me. And then look for ways that he is. And ask the Lord to give you a sensitivity to how he is guiding. Maybe it'll be what you say. Maybe it'll be what you, what you do. Maybe it'll be where you go. But ask him to open your eyes to see. Secondly, because all that we have is given by grace, we need to ask the Lord to guard our hearts from pride and hardness. That we would be grace-filled people that leads to gracious living and how we interact with one another. And thirdly, because others need to hear about Jesus and his works, we will not hold back from sharing them with others because we have this great opportunity to do so. We know him. We know what he's doing, and we can share it with others. And lastly, knowing that judgment day is coming, we will live in humble and holy fear with gratitude that we are covered in Christ's righteousness. I know that we're in the season of Advent where we talk about a cradle and we talk about angels and we talk about shepherds and we talk about magi. But that cradle event led necessarily to the cross event. And that cross event was necessary because in our sin we are completely uncovered and naked before a holy God who sees all things and will judge us. Because of what Christ did on the cross, through faith and repentance, he clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. And as we are clothed in his righteousness, we can go out and serve and declare and live for him and for his glory and for his people because he's already done it. So as the cradle leads to the cross, we are a sure people because of a good God. Let us pray. Father, we are mindful and grateful this morning that we have a Lord Jesus Christ who's not afraid to speak the truth to us in love. Father, as we walk through this week, the temptation may be for us to flee from the work that you want to do in us to justify our own situation, or simply, Father, just to not want to hear. Father, would you open our eyes to understand and to see and to embrace and to believe. I thank you for the mighty works of Jesus. Would you show us this week how you are still doing mighty things? Give us eyes to see them and hearts to rejoice in them. And Father, we pray that this Advent season would be even the best one yet in our lives as we experience anew and afresh this good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So I thank you, Father. And I can ask now for your blessing and your kindness. In Jesus' name, amen.